Every single bit of dietary energy we ever consume comes directly from the sun. Making it all about plants or animals is a really false dichotomy. Most people legitimately are eating until they get enough protein. Either they need to eat more protein dilution or they want to eat more carbs and fats together. Metabolic oversupply will literally break your mitochondria. People just don't understand how little it actually takes if the intensity is as high as you can possibly generate. Welcome to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast, where we meet the world's top experts to explore the secrets of health, mindset, longevity, and so much more. Are you ready to take charge of your existence and biohack your life? This show is for you. Please keep in mind, we're not dispensing medical advice and are not responsible for any outcomes you may experience from implementing the tactics lying herein. Welcome back to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. Today's episode is on a dietary topic that personally really resonates with me. It's something that I personally subscribe to, have done a lot of research on, and I just feel like there is a lot there, and that is the role of protein in diet. So as we discuss, maybe it's not about plant versus animal or carbs versus fat. Maybe the key to focus on here is protein. Hmm, we shall see. It's definitely a deep dive and I was really happy because I got to ask a lot of the questions I've been really, really wondering about. You might be familiar with the authors. One of them is William Schufelt. He plays the red Power Ranger Brody on Nickelodeon's Power Rangers Ninja Steel, which is pretty cool, I gotta say. He's also the host of the Will to Win podcast. And of course, co-authored the PE diet book that we'll be talking about today with Dr. Ted Naiman. Now, Dr. Ted Naiman is a board-certified family medicine physician, and his research and medical practice focuses on the practical implementation of diet and exercise for health optimization, which I obviously totally love. And one thing I love about Dr. Naiman, which I found out in this interview, is he actually studied in Loma Linda and has a history of a plant-based diet. So... He's been there, done that with all sides of the spectrum when it comes to diet. And I think that's really, really valuable, especially for a book focused on protein, which can be a heated topic. Show notes for today's episode will be at melanieavalon.com slash protein. You definitely want to check out those show notes because I am so thrilled to announce that from here on out, the show notes will have transcripts. I'm so excited about this, guys. It's been needed for so long and I finally bit the bullet. And in case you're wondering, somebody did ask me, they were like, please don't tell me that you're typing them up yourself. And I was like, no, 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 no. We're outsourcing this one. So you don't have to worry. I mean, not that you're worrying, but no, I am not spending hours and hours writing up the transcript. It will be outsourced. And I am slowly working my way back through the old episodes and getting transcripts generated for those as well, because I just really want all this information to be available to everybody in every format. So I'm so excited about that. One of the ways those transcripts are possible is with supporters of this podcast. Hi, friends. Do you want to come hang out with me and Dave Asprey and so many other guests I've had on the show? You simply must come to the 10th annual biohacking conference, May 30th through June 1st in Dallas, Texas. And of course, I have a massive discount code for you guys. I went last year to the one in Orlando and it was one of the most fun times of my entire life. I met and got to hang out with so many guests that I've had on the show. I met so many of you guys. And of course, there's lots of Danger Coffee and Dave Asprey approved meals and dry farm wines. 
And that's just the social aspect. The conference itself is mind-blowing. They have this incredible expo where they have all the biohacking supplements, all the biohacking things. You can learn about them, try samples, meet the creators and founders. If you haven't tried a lot of biohacking things, it's a great chance to actually try them out in person. Things like brain tap, infrared sauna, hyperbaric oxygen chambers, and so much more. There are so many incredible speakers as well. You can hear talks from people I've had on the show like Paul Saladino, Dr. Daniel Amen, Dr. Sarah Gottfried, Dr. Mercola, Dr. Annika Becca, and that is just a few of them. I seriously had the time of my life last year, and I would love to hang out with you guys. And you can get 35% off tickets. Just go to melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference and use the coupon code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. That's melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference with the code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. This code can be used for general admission or for VIP access. Seating is limited. They do sell out. They sold out last year. So get your ticket now. And if you come, definitely let me know because I want to meet you. So hopefully see you guys in Dallas. MelanieAvalon.com slash biohacking conference with coupon code BCMelanie. Get your tickets now. I'll see you guys there. Friends, you guys know I love wine. Do you love wine? I've done a lot of research on wine and I truly believe there are a myriad of health benefits The longest-lived populations drink wine. The polyphenols have a ton of potential health benefits, activating anti-aging sirtuins, potentially supporting our immunity, maybe even encouraging weight loss. Yep, it's actually not alcohol that makes people gain weight. It's what they eat when they drink. But if you want all of the benefits of wine, the type of wine you're drinking is key. Conventional wine in the U.S. is often full of toxins. We're talking things like pesticides, mold, and additives. Dyes, colorizers, artificial flavors. Have you even seen some wine that says vegan? That's because conventional wine isn't even necessarily vegan because of the additives. I am obsessed with a company called Dry Farm Wines. They're not a wine producer, but rather a wine investigator. They go all throughout Europe and they find the wineries practicing organic practices, and then they test those wines to make sure the wines are, wait for it, low alcohol, low sugar, free of toxins, free of mold, and truly supportive of your health. I'm obsessed with Dry Farm Wines. One of the most fun things for me as a wine lover is you get mixed boxes of wine and it introduces you to varietals from all over the world. The wines taste amazing and you can say goodbye to hangovers. If you think you can't drink wine, you've got to try Dry Farm Wines. I am obsessed. You can get a bottle for a penny. Yes, a penny. Just go to dryfarmwines.com slash Melanie Avalon and use the coupon code Melanie Avalon to claim your penny bottle. That's dryfarmwines.com slash Melanie Avalon. All right, now back to the show. I definitely encourage you to take a hard look, no pun intended, at your skincare. Our skincare and makeup is actually one of the most potent, prevalent daily exposures to toxins every single day. People don't really think about that because they think skincare and makeup helps your skin and makes you look more beautiful. Well, besides the fact that I believe beauty comes from within and not from the outside, conventional skincare and makeup is actually typically full of toxins. We're talking things like heavy metals, especially lead, which is actually particularly concentrated in, quote, natural mineral-based makeups because the mineral sources are high in heavy metals. 
Skincare and makeup is also often rampant in endocrine disruptors. I'm looking more and more into this, and I really think this is so huge. And I think possibly one of the reasons that we struggle with so many hormonal issues today. And the FDA admittedly has essentially no regulation on any of these compounds or chemicals in our skincare or makeup products. It's shocking. And until very recently, there wasn't really a source to go to that you could trust for skincare and makeup across the board. But now there is. And that's Beauty Counter. And I am so grateful for Beauty Counter because what they do is they have made it their mission to change this. They only use ingredients that are safe, that are tested extensively to be free of toxins and free of things that are not good for your skin or your health. And beyond that, their products work. They support your skin health. They have lines for acne, for anti-aging, really anything that you want to tackle. They have skincare for that. And then their makeup is actually fantastic. Thank goodness. Because how sad would it be if there was actually this company (laughs) providing the answer, but then like their makeup wasn't good. Their makeup's the bomb. So that's so perfect. You can shop with me at beautycounter.com slash Melanie Avalon. And if you use that link, something really special and magical might happen after your first order. And if you want to know what that really special and magical thing is, definitely get on my clean beauty email list. That's at melanieavalon.com slash clean beauty. You probably want to get on it anyway, because I do a lot of fun giveaways and discounts on that list. I am a Himalaya partnered show. And if you follow the Melanie Avalon biohacking podcast in the Himalaya app, you'll get early access to the podcast 24 hours in advance. So definitely check that out. Also, please join me in my Facebook community. That is paleo OMAD biohackers, intermittent fasting plus real foods plus life. We discuss everything there. I mean, everything. (laughs) I love that group. So if after listening to this episode, you have any questions or want to discuss things further, definitely join me there. I'd actually really like to hear, do you find that you do better on lower protein, higher protein diets? I'd love to discuss it with you there. All right. So without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with William Schufelt and Dr. Ted Naiman. Hi, friends. Welcome back to the show. I am here with William Schufelt and Dr. Ted Naiman, and they have crafted an amazing book called The PE Diet, Leverage Your Biology to Achieve Optimal Health. And listeners, there are a lot of diets out there. (laughs) There are a lot of theories about, you know, what supports the optimal health, what supports body composition. And oftentimes it involves, you know, different macronutrients and things like that. But this book, The PE Diet, actually focuses in on something that really, really resonates with me, at least with all of the research that I've done on how diet affects health, longevity, and so many things. And that is really the role of protein in the diet. And we'll we'll go um, obviously into more detail, other things as well, minerals, the role of carbs and fats, so many things. But I really, really love this approach. The book, it's an easy read, but very sciencey. It's very nuanced, very approachable. So I really cannot recommend enough that listeners check it out. So thank you both, William and Dr. Naiman, for being here. Oh, wow. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you for having us on. I've been really looking forward to this for a really long time. So for listeners who aren't familiar, to start things off, I'd love to get listeners a little bit familiar with you, your personal histories and what brought you to where you are today and what brought you to collaborate together on this book. So William, I don't know if you'd like to start. William has a really fascinating career trajectory. So I'm really excited for listeners to hear about that. Would you like to tell listeners a little bit about that, William? I would love to know what that career trajectory looks like. (laughs) Basically, 
I guess how this all started off was I've had quite a long just health and fitness journey. This started when I was 13, really getting into the bodybuilding scene and getting into weights. And from about 15 to 18, dealing with some severe acne, which led me to a whole foods plant-based approach, which was effective for a period of time until about three and a half years into that, I was dealing with some severe hunger, lack of satiety, low mental and physical energy, and a lot of gut issues with that. So that kind of led to discovering keto and about you know, halfway into shooting this Power Rangers show that I had done, I basically stumbled upon Ted's work just through Twitter. And I asked Ted a few quick questions about how to implement some of this. And I was just studying the stuff that I was learning from him. So once I implemented some of the protein to energy ratio concepts into the keto diet that I was doing at the time, that's when I really finally achieved the results that checked off all of the boxes for me in regards to my health and fitness goals. So From that point on, I would see people occasionally comment on Ted's Twitter, do you have a book coming out? Can you release a book? And basically, this this project kind of came from my own desire to read Ted's book. (laughs) I basically wanted to see all of this compiled into one thing. So that's kind of what we worked together on to make happen. And now we're kind of looking to maybe getting this out to even more platforms and in different mediums. Yeah, it is so incredible. And so listeners... (laughs) If your ears perked up a little bit with the Power Ranger drop in there, William is well known as the Red Power Ranger in the current Nickelodeon series for Power Rangers, right? I admittedly am not good with my Power Ranger knowledge. (laughs) I don't blame you. I wouldn't expect you to watch it. It's now actually the season before last. So they just recently filmed a new series with a whole new squad. So I'm basically old and washed up, but I'm right before the most recent season. Yes. Okay. Wait, can I ask a really quick question? It's just super random. So the Power Rangers, is it kind of like with all the other superheroes where they're like Spider-Man or something where there's always just like a new Spider-Man, even though it's still the same Spider-Man? So like, is the Power Rangers, are they the same Power Rangers? Are they supposed to be a new Power Ranger? So it's basically new teams. So the show is based off of a Japanese series. And what the American show does is it takes the themes from the Japanese series. So the Japanese show every two seasons, so pretty much every two years, they will have a completely new theme. It might be based around ninjas or samurais or dragons or dinosaurs or whatever it happens to be. And they'll create like a completely new storyline, new theme, new team, all that kind of stuff. So the season that I had done, it was Ninja Steel. So it was kind of a ninja-based season. So like the Red Power Ranger is a a new Power Ranger, not like Spider-Man where it's the same Spider-Man, but played by a new person. It's a completely new character. Each of the different colors, though, they they always tend to represent like similar roles. But yeah, it's, it's a completely new character each two seasons. Okay. I just learned so much and I learned it straight from the source. So this is a good moment. (laughs) All right. Well, speaking back to what you're talking about, it's so wonderful that you, you know, had this interest and you found this diet that worked for you and then that you were following the work of Dr. Naaman and that you got to collaborate. I mean, way to make things manifest. That's amazing. So Dr. Naaman, would you like to tell listeners a little bit about your history and what brought you to where you are today? Oh, sure. Yeah. Well, I'm a primary care doctor. And as of this year, I've been in practice for 20 years, which makes me super old, basically just as old as hell. And I've been interested in diet and exercise, you know, for a really long time. And I kind of started out 
actually plant-based and vegetarian. I was raised vegetarian. I went to Loma Linda University, which is this famous vegetarian mecca. But after interacting with patients and seeing the sorts of dietary changes that could improve health, I experimented with a lot of other types of diets and I did a ton of research and ended up realizing that making it all about plants or animals is a really false dichotomy and it's just kind of a smokescreen and really just muddies the waters for everyone. Everyone ends up wondering what the heck they're supposed to eat. So I've spent a lot of time trying to figure out what is it exactly that drives health when it comes to diet. And what I tried to do with this book is just codify some sort of universal theory of diet and why all of these diets can be beneficial, you know, paleo and low carb and low fat and plant-based and all of this sort of stuff. So that's actually very appropriate. I did not know that, Dr. Neiman, about your history at Loma Linda and your experience with a plant-based diet, that's actually probably really fortunate for you now with this whole, you know, positing this theory of the role of protein and nutrition, since oftentimes the plant-based idea, and especially, you know, the works of the vegetarian findings of longevity at Loma Linda, there's this idea of minimizing protein for health and wellness. So I think it's probably, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it's probably nice that you do have that background. So people can't say that you haven't <laughs> that you haven't seen both sides of the coin. This is true. I'm kind of a double threat to the plant-based world, honestly, because of my extensive experience and study and personal and professional experience with plant-based diets. That's probably the worst. They're like, oh no, he's been there. Oh no. So I love what you said about, I just love it so much. You're talking about it's not plant versus animal. I just lit up when you said that because I think we get into these dietary dogma wars that do a disservice to nobody because they think the answer is either no animal products, all animal products, no plant products, all plant products, when really it might be more complicated than that and have to do with a lot of things, you know, in the actual animal plant products themselves, how the body is reacting to them. So I thought to start things off, something that you talk about when you start off your book is you talk about how solar energy actually is stored in plants and animals and the implications of that and how that ultimately translates to our bodies when we eat those. So would you guys like to talk a little bit about that, what that actually looks like on a a scientific level? Oh, I would love to talk about that. The reality is every single bit of dietary energy we ever consume comes directly from the sun and plants store every bit of this solar energy as dietary chemical energy. And they do that using air and water. They're using carbon dioxide and water and they use the carbons and hydrogens and oxygens from carbon dioxide in the air and water to store solar energy as chemical energy. They do that with the little chloroplast doohickeys in their cells, which are kind of like the mitochondrion that humans have in their cells. And in fact, the chloroplasts in plants and the mitochondria in humans are very analogous. So the plant is taking solar energy, air and water, and converting it to chemical energy, which is basically carbs or fats, carbohydrates or hydrocarbons. And then animals eat the hydrocarbons or carbohydrates, and we strip off the hydrogens in our mitochondria 
using oxygen and convert it to carbon dioxide and water, which we exhale. So it's this really cool circle of energy going from the sun to plants to animals and using carbon dioxide and water. Super fascinating. Very cool. I am constantly amazed at how the system works. Yeah, I love that. And then you also talked about in the book, even beyond that, the energy, you know, when we again die, there's this, you know, decomposition and return to the soil. So it really is this whole circle of life with energy. (laughs) It's really, really fascinating. Right, right. All of this nitrogen is basically drawn up from topsoil by plants and incorporated into their bodies. And then animals eat the plants and use the nitrogen. And then when animals die or anything dies, it's decomposed by bacteria back into the topsoil. So you have this nitrogen cycle. And then you have the carbon cycle where animals breathe out carbon dioxide, plants breathe in the carbon dioxide and give off oxygen. So the carbon is cycling back and forth between plants and animals, and the nitrogen is also. And it's just a really, really cool circle of life. But plants and animals are intimately interdependent on each other. And it's plants that end up making all of our food. So ultimately, maybe instead of thinking about things in plants and animals, we should be thinking about carbon and nitrogen. (laughs) Exactly. Thank you. Wow. So I actually, so I do have a question while we are talking about the plant versus animal debate, as it were. So the energy potential of this carbon and nitrogen, when it's found in the form of plants compared to when it moves up the food chain into animals, what are the implications of that for us eating them? So the energy that we extract from this carbon when we get it from plants compared to when we get it from animals? Is there a difference or how does that affect things? There's a couple different major differences. Number one, plants tend to store most of their extra energy as carbohydrates. Plants can make carbohydrates or fats, obviously, because you have, you know, avocados and nuts and all these foods that have a bunch of fat in them. But plants tend to store the majority of their extra energy as carbs. And animals tend to overwhelmingly store the majority of their extra energy as fat. We have very little carbohydrate storage in our bodies. So you kind of get this automatic skew where the plant-based people think eating carbs is good and eating fats are bad because plants overwhelmingly store their energy as carbs and not as fat. And then the animal-based people overwhelmingly prefer eating fat and not carbohydrate because animal foods are going to have mostly fat and very little carbohydrates in them. But kind of once again, that's a little bit of a false dichotomy. The other major difference between plants and animals is that when you look at things that are coming up from the soil, like nitrogen, which is absorbed in mineral form, and other minerals, they are dramatically more concentrated in animals than they are in plants. Like a plant sucks up nitrogen and minerals from the soil, but it's limited as to how far its roots can reach. But an animal, like your cow comes along and eats, you know, 100,000 blades of grass, and it's going to bioaccumulate the protein and nitrogen and minerals. So it's going to have a much higher density of nitrogen and minerals, these micronutrients, than plants do, which is why animal foods always have more protein, higher quality protein, more complete protein, more bioavailable protein and minerals than plant foods. They're at a higher trophic level. They're one rung up on the food ladder and they're just biomagnifying or concentrating all of these micronutrients. 
Speaking to that, so I think people are pretty open to the idea that we can get more protein potentially from animals than plants, but I think people's ears might perk up when they hear that minerals are actually higher up in animals. So, because I think when people think minerals, they think they think plants, at least I do. So what are examples of these minerals and how are they found in animals as well? Really good examples are like calcium, which is always going to be higher in animal food than plant food, or zinc, which is a extremely common deficiency in people on a plant-based diet that you'll always see much higher concentrations of zinc in a animal food than a plant food. There's about a dozen minerals that you have to get in your diet that are much higher in animal foods than in plant foods. Now, there are some minerals in plant foods. In fact, plants have a fair amount of magnesium in them because the chlorophyll molecule is centered around magnesium, just like the hemoglobin molecule in animals is centered around iron. So you'll get more iron in animal foods and you'll get a fair amount of magnesium in plant foods. But other than that, all of your minerals are really going to be higher in your animal foods than they are going to be in your plant foods. It's kind of like, well, mercury in ocean fish. As you go up the food chain, you get higher and higher amounts of mercury. Now, in this case, mercury is kind of bad. But you see the same biomagnification or accumulation automatically happening as you go up the food chain in the plants versus animal as well. This is a super random question, but I've often heard the argument, and I'm not trying to create dietary wards or anything, but I have heard plant-powered based people make the argument that in a way, animal products are more processed. There, there's this ongoing debate about getting energy directly from plants or getting it from animals and that animals are somehow processing the plant. So it's like having a processed form of energy. Do either of you have any thoughts on that or have you heard this before? I think that makes sense and that's totally true. And a really good example of that is like an adult male gorilla who has just as much muscle as a human but literally spends 16 hours a day chewing plant matter and eats 60 pounds of food. The plant-based people are like, oh, you, you know, you can be just as strong. Oh, look at a rhino, look at a gorilla. And it's true, the gorilla, you know, has 300 pounds of muscle and it absolutely does not need you know, to get protein from any other source, but it's literally eating 60 pounds of vegetation a day. And it's literally chewing 16 hours out of its day compared with like my pit bull eats twice a day and she eats for about 30 seconds each time. Like that's literally, it. it's like a can of solid meat twice a day and she eats it in 30 seconds. She spends probably less than one minute of the day eating. And that's all she has to eat. It's incredibly efficient. And it just, sure, you could call that outsourcing the processing to animals. I'm going to submit that maybe that's better. I certainly would prefer that. Yeah, I think processing has a negative connotation to it. And I think in this case with the animal foods, it's actually a positive thing that's happening. You are getting, you know, a much higher nutrient density with, let's say, a pound of steak the amount of food that I would be eating when I was plant-based, like just the sheer volume of food, it would take so much time out of the day. And there was a lot of, I think, digestive work that went into that. I could definitely feel that. So yeah, I, I could definitely agree with what Ted's saying there. Eating takes a lot less time for me now. 
that a lot of those nutrients are more concentrated and processed through the animals. I think we have this whole really negative idea with processing thanks to the conventional processed food, but I'm not so sure that that argument extends to you know, the form of the natural processed form of food that we might get in an animal product. So going back to protein, again, this is one reason that I, I loved reading the science in this book is for me personally, I have always been a proponent of, well, I say always, always ever since I started understanding the implications of diet and how it affects your health. High protein has really resonated with me. It's always worked for me when I go lower protein. I just don't feel right. I'll read these books, you know, because there's so much out there now about trying to posit low protein diets for longevity. So on the occasion that I try going a little bit lower protein, I'm just like, I need my protein. So protein, you guys talk about in the PE diet that a lot of the health problems that we have today, even the obesity epidemic might actually involve a lack of protein. So Would you like to talk a little bit about that? What role is protein playing and why is it so necessary and why are we potentially not getting enough of it today? A lot of my research and work for this book was based on the protein leverage hypothesis. And we have a lot of studies that show that most animals will eat until they get a certain amount of protein. And we have studies in humans that suggest that the amount of non-protein energy you eat goes up in an inversely proportional way to the percentage of protein in your food. In other words, let's say you need 150 grams of protein a day for satiety, but you're eating French fries, which are 6% protein, you know, potatoes and oil. You have to massively overeat carbs and fats from French fries to get enough protein to not be hungry. And that's protein leverage. So the theory is that we've diluted the protein in our diets with all the carbs and fats that are cheap and ubiquitous. And then people have to overeat non-protein energy in order to get enough protein to not be hungry. All right. So there's this idea that, you know, we might have this, this hunger that we can't fill until we get enough protein from our food. What are your thoughts on the amount of protein a person does need per day. I know there's like the the conventional ranges put out there by the government, but I don't know if you guys subscribe to that. Do you think it's actually more than that? What do you think is the amount of protein somebody should be shooting for per day? So the RDA is established as a very, very, very bare minimum that you have to just squeak over in order to not have a frank, full-blown deficiency. And so a lot of adults will have an RDA of maybe 60 grams of protein. But again, that's just the minimum you have to eat to not get sick. And in my opinion, optimum is much higher than the RDA. And in fact, if you're worried about satiety, and if you're trying to avoid ingesting too much energy, You really want to leverage protein for satiety. And yes, you're eating more protein than you absolutely need to survive. But I do think that's optimal from a satiety standpoint, especially since, you know, 90% of Americans are metabolically unhealthy from overeating energy. So I think one of the best ways to avoid that is to just crank up the protein percentage of your diet. 
Yeah. And then speaking to satiety, this is something else I really wanted to jump into. So I'm glad you touched on that. Going back a little bit, you were talking about, for example, the difference between, you know, low carb diets, low fat diets, and all of the debate surrounding that when really, you know, protein might be a common factor here. How do these different diets potentially affect satiety, both in the long term, the short term? Because something that I found fascinating, especially things like carbs, for example, because on the one hand, people go on low carb diets and, you know, their hunger goes away. It's like they finally feel free from food. And then there are people who never quite feel full unless they have carbs in their meals. It seems that with some people, having carbs makes them want to eat carbs constantly, whereas others, it's just about finding the right amount of carbs to feel full. So how do the various macronutrients affect satiety in the short-term and long-term, protein, carbs, and fat? Well, I think there's a couple different phenomenon going on there. First of all, I think that most people legitimately are eating until they get enough protein to not be hungry. And then if you reduce either the carbs or the fats in your diet, you're going to be significantly increasing the protein percentage. So you literally just don't have to eat as much to get the same quantity of protein. If I go very low carb or very low fat, my protein percentage just jumped up quite a bit. So I'm going to have to eat less to get protein satiety. I think that in the case of carbohydrate, there's one other little feature there, and that's that when you eat carbohydrate, your blood sugar goes up and then falls back down again gradually. And some people feel this glucose excursion. They feel their blood sugar falling, and it makes them hungry again way sooner than they would have been otherwise. So it's like, you know, you eat your just your dry toast and juice for breakfast, and then three or four hours later, you just feel this low blood sugar and you're eating again. And you might be just as hungry as if you hadn't eaten any breakfast at all. So there's this falling glucose aspect to carbohydrate that I also think makes people eat more frequently. And your average American's eating eight times a day in a 16-hour window and 300 grams of carbs. And we're literally eating carbs every few hours. And I think that when people radically reduce the carbohydrate amount in their diet or carbohydrate frequency, they start getting more immune to this falling blood sugar phenomenon that makes so many people hungry all the time. So that's kind of like a separate facet of all of this. You've got your protein leverage where you're eating to get enough protein and minerals. And then you've also got this falling glucose thing that makes some people carbohydrate dependent. And if you just go low carb for a period of time and get quote unquote fat adapted, you're sort of immune to that and you're not subjected to that. So you don't have to eat quite as often, which I think is kind of separate and also helpful, if you know what I mean. I'm so excited because I do have some follow-up questions because I've had some questions that have been haunting me about all of this, especially the role of protein and satiety health. So super excited to get your opinion. Okay. So with the protein, I have heard it posited that carbohydrates are actually protein sparing or that when you add in carbohydrates, you actually need less protein. Do you have thoughts on that? It's absolutely true that carbohydrates are protein sparing in that if you're on a very low carbohydrate diet, 
you're going to be utilizing more protein for gluconeogenesis to make glucose. So you're constantly making glucose. And if you're, let's say I'm doing a bunch of high intensity exercise that requires a lot of glucose. If I eat no carbs at all, I will use more protein to make more glucose. And if I was eating carbs, I would spare that protein. You will see bodybuilders, for example, getting by with lower protein intakes if they're eating carbohydrate. Those two can almost be interchangeable in terms of manufacturing the glucose that you need, either just to be alive and run your metabolism or to do high-intensity exercise. So it's absolutely true that carbohydrate is protein-sparing. And that's really why you better be eating either protein or carbs if you don't want to break down your lean mass. Okay, now you just brought up my obsession that I have questions about, which is gluconeogenesis. I have, it's mostly a love relationship, but it's slightly love hate because I have sort of, I have some uncertainties about it because I personally have struggled with gut issues in the past and currently, but you know, microbiome issues, bloating, things like that. And I found that having a high protein diet with less, you know, fermentable fruit and produce really allows me to keep that managed. And I do think I'm relying on that gluconeogenic pathway to create carbs from protein. Do you think, kind of like ketosis, there's this idea that gluconeogenesis is not the natural state that our body is meant to be in? Like there's this idea that it's a stressful state or it's, it only is activated in emergencies. So like in this case it would be, you know, not enough carbs. So we're having, having to turn to protein. Kind of like there's the idea that ketosis is an emergency state because there's well, same with the carbs. But what are your thoughts on that? Is gluconeogenesis, is it stressful for the body, for the liver to go undergo that process and create carbs from protein? Or is it totally fine and it's just another pathway that most people aren't using as much? I think what a lot of people don't realize, what almost no one realizes, is that your liver is constantly manufacturing enough glucose to keep you alive at all times, no matter what you eat. In the background, there's this low amount of gluconeogenesis that's constantly occurring. Your liver is constantly manufacturing all the glucose that you need. And it has to do this because the liver is responsible for making sure your glucose level is perfect at all times. And your liver doesn't know if you're going to stop eating for the next two months, if you're not going to get food for weeks. It has no idea what's going to happen. So it's just steadily making glucose when you eat carbohydrates and have exogenous glucose coming in, that just raises your blood sugar on top of the level that the liver's already making and stores glycogen in the liver on top of what you're already making. So no, the gluconeogenesis process is not stressful. The time where it might start to be stressful is if you're doing huge volumes of highly glycolytic, high-intensity exercise. If you're doing exercise higher than 80% of your maximum output, you're burning a ton of glucose. And if you never eat any carbohydrates, yes, you will spend more time manufacturing more glucose in your liver to try to replenish that glycogen. And in fact, if you're doing more than about two hours of extremely high-intensity activity, a day and eating no carbohydrates at all, that's probably going to be additional stress 
trying to manufacture the glucose to make up for that. And that will probably reduce your performance and make you more quote unquote overtrained. If you're not doing high intensity exercise in large volumes, no, it's not stressful at all to completely rely on gluconeogenesis for all of your glucose. If you're running a competitive marathon every day, okay, it's starting to be an issue. Just something I want to pitch in about that in periods of time where I've been in like more intense states of training, let's say I'm training daily or twice a day. One thing I've noticed really, really helpful is with the inclusion of, let's say a cup of white rice or potatoes at night, I would actually drop water weight. So I would notice in my face or in my abs, my muscles would actually fill out. So my muscle glycogen stores would fill out a bit. But I think something about including that bit of carbohydrates to support the training would actually, I don't know if it would decrease my cortisol or what, but I would lose a lot of water weight, sort of just that level of water right on top of the muscles. And I would have fuller muscles, which is kind of a trick that a lot of bodybuilders use. So that's something that I've noticed is helpful when training stress goes up to not add that additional stressor of, you know, you've got fasting and then you've got no carbs coming in and you're training extremely hard. That's something that I've kind of played around with and found helpful. That's absolutely fascinating. And I think there's something really there with the whole water weight. And it's so interesting because I think people, especially if they've been low carb for a while, they might anticipate that adding in carbs will, you know, create all of this water weight gain. But it's really interesting to know that you experience, you know, the opposite, despite the muscle glycogen filling up, there is, there does seem to be potentially this, you know, water weight drop. Dr. Naiman, do you think that would be something that would be involved with like cortisol? I mean, that was my initial thought. Yes. So typically if you're eating no carbohydrate and doing a lot of high intensity exercise, your, your resting heart rate will literally go up and your sympathetic nervous system tone will literally be higher. You might have higher cortisol. You might have higher epinephrine, norepinephrine. You, you will be literally more stressed out. And, and we do see that eating some carbohydrate there will lower sympathetic nervous tone. And so that there's absolutely something to that. And there's definitely absolutely something to the fluid manipulation of eating carbs and glycogen. And that's, you know, why every bodybuilder in their peak week, the day before a show, they're going to eat, you know, hundreds of grams of carbs and do this super compensation trick where you fill your muscles with glycogen. And then if you don't drink a bunch of water, you'll actually suck some water out from underneath your skin into your muscles with that glycogen storage. And that's how they get this sort of dry, peeled bodybuilder look, you know, so that's all totally valid. Yep. Hi friends. An incredible fasting aid is coffee. Yes, I am all about the coffee. I am a huge fan of its health benefits as well as how it can support your fast and really help with energy and fat burning. And I have a big announcement. The brand of coffee that I have been drinking for an entire decade now, I am no longer drinking. There's some drama, there's some science, and I'm about to tell you how to get a discount on my new favorite coffee. So I've been drinking the coffee formerly known as Dave Asprey's Bulletproof Coffee for literally a decade. I do not drink it now, so this is not a Bulletproof Coffee commercial, but I started drinking it because I so trusted Dave and his obsession in creating mold-free coffee because moldy coffee beans is a huge problem and a lot of people can get health issues, brain fog, and crash after coffee because of the mold contamination. 
contamination. David's been talking about this for so long, so I really trusted him and I would drink Bulletproof coffee, which I absolutely loved and loved that it was mold-free. Then there was some drama. Dave sort of got kicked out of Bulletproof. He might be going back. There's a lot of stuff going on with that. Follow him on Instagram if you want to learn more about that. He even talked about it at the recent biohacking conference. But in any case, (laughs) drama aside, he can no longer speak to Bulletproof coffee as to whether or not it is mold-free. And he ended up making a coffee even better than Bulletproof coffee. And it is called Danger Coffee. And friends, I love it. It's the first coffee that is not only mold-free, but actually can help you remineralize. Yep, that's right. Danger Coffee contains a patent-pending formula that actually remineralizes your body with more than 50 trace minerals, nutrients, and electrolytes. On top of that, it is super clean. I know people like to see organic labels. Friends, I have learned so much about the certification industry. And honestly, the best of the best is finding people that you trust who do extensive testing and third-party certification. That's what I do with my Avalon X supplements. And that's what Dave does with Danger Coffee. So with Danger Coffee, they use a process that far exceeds government and industry standards. And it is third-party lab tested. So you can rest assured it is free of mold toxins. As for the flavor, Dave selected these hand-picked farm direct beans for their quality, their superb flavor, and their elevated performance. I love the taste of it. It's much richer and more nuanced than Bulletproof Coffee. It's honestly one of the best coffees I've ever tasted, and it's so exciting to know that when I'm drinking it, I'm actually helping to remineralize my body. So that's right. If you want your coffee to contain antioxidants, anti-inflammatories, micronutrients, and help optimize your fasting, you want Danger Coffee. And of course, I have a discount for you guys. You can go to melanieavalon.com slash dangercoffee and use the coupon code MELANIEAVALON to get 10% off. Again, that is melanieavalon.com slash dangercoffee with the coupon code MELANIEAVALON for 10% off. This is my favorite coffee. Like I said, it takes some really good coffee and convincing biohacking health reasons to break me from my 10-year decade bulletproof coffee habit. But sometimes you just got to upgrade. And by the way, this would make epic presents for people. This can just become your go-to present. Not only will people love it, but you'll be helping their health as well. Everybody wins. MelanieAvalon.com slash Danger Coffee with the coupon code Danger Coffee. Hi friends. I am so excited to tell you about something that I am obsessed with that can revolutionize your health, help with stress levels, support longevity, and really help you when you go out and are having a bit of wine or drinks or all the things. And I'm going to tell you how to get $100 off. So I've been talking about the role of NAD in our health for so long. NAD stands for nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide. It is a coenzyme that is involved in so many processes in our body, including energy production and DNA repair. And it is depleted by things like stress, aging, lack of sleep, alcohol, and of course, too much partying. In fact, a lot of researchers believe that declining NAD levels is one of the key factors in aging. That's why I have been really interested in boosting and supporting NAD levels. And I have tried all the things. You can take precursors to NAD called NR and NMN 
I still take NMN. However, I am much more alert by directly giving your body NAD. And historically, the most common way to do that that is accessible to people was through NAD IVs and NAD shots. I actually never did an NAD IV for a few reasons. One, they are extraordinarily expensive. Two, I've been doing the shots, which I liked because they were easy to do. That said, they always made me feel a little bit unwell right afterwards. And I've heard that the IV makes a lot of people feel unwell. So if the shots were making me feel unwell and that was going into the muscle first as like a barrier, I can't even imagine what putting it straight into my bloodstream would have done. Plus with the IVs, you have to sit there for potentially hours. So basically IVs were a no-go for me. So like I said, I was doing the shots, but I was like, I wish there was an easier way to do this. Then a company called Ion Layer reached out to me. Oh my goodness, friends. I am so obsessed. So they make transdermal NAD patches and they have studies showing that these patches actually boost your NAD levels. And what's so amazing is you put on a patch. It's super easy to put on. I have a video on my Instagram about how you do it. You basically get this patch thing with like a negative side and a positive side. You put saline on one side, you mix up the NAD with some sterile water and the NAD that they give you on the other side. Then you stick it to your arm or wherever you want to put it. You put a super cool black patch over it, kind of like how you put the patches over CGMs. And then what's amazing is there are no side effects. You don't feel unwell from it. And it lasts for 14 hours. And it's so easy. You can do it at home and then you can really decide when you want to do it. So with the shots, I was doing them once a week and I was trying to do them before going out with this patch. Now I put on the patch before going out and it makes me feel so good. It really helps the next day from any alcohol recovery that you may need. And they look pretty awesome with my outfits. Not going to lie. I am obsessed with these patches. I just want everybody to know about them and they are so much more affordable than the shots or the IVs. If you want to boost your NAD levels, support anti-aging, help with your stress, help with lack of sleep, and or optimize your partying. You need these patches, friends. And I'm so excited because working with the company has been amazing and they are giving you guys $100 off, which is incredible. So to get that discount, just go to melanieavalon.com slash ion layer. That's I-O-N-L-A-Y-E-R and use the coupon code melanieavalon to get $100 off your first order. I cannot recommend these enough. I'm going to use them for the unforeseeable future, probably for the rest of my life. It's literally just become part of my arsenal now. Like when I'm getting ready to go out, usually once a week, put on my NAD patch. And even if I don't go out that week, I still like to do one once weekly. Oh, P.S. They're also amazing for traveling. You guys know I'm not a big traveler. I've been doing more traveling recently and I wear these on the plane there and back. Game changer. Although it's really fun at TSA, especially because I already opt out and don't go through the scanner thing. So they already are suspicious. And then they're like, what's that on your arm? And I'm like, it's NAD. And then they're like, what's that? And then I'm like, it's a coenzyme in your body that's involved in a lot of metabolic processes and energy production and DNA repair. And then they just look at me really weird, but it's fine. It's totally fine. So again, that's melanieavalon.com slash ion layer to get $100 off your ion layer kit. It comes with six patches, totally the way to go for boosting NAD levels. And I cannot recommend it enough. melanieavalon.com slash ion layer with the coupon code melanieavalon for $100 off. So while we're still in the carbs and fat world, assuming that we have this, you know, this paradigm that we're looking at where we have protein as the central anchor, as it will, to focus on. And then there's the potential, at least for metabolic health, it seems to be either lower carb or lower fat. 
What are your thoughts on that? Why should one potentially gravitate to one or the other compared to having carbs, fats, and protein in a higher amount, like in a high carb, high fat? I think there's two big reasons. First of all, by either cutting down carbs or fats, your protein percent is higher and you're just literally going to eat less. And that's definitely evidence-based. We have studies that that completely suggests that this happens in pretty much all animals. If you eat a higher protein percentage, you're not going to eat as much. So going lower in carbs or fats is going to be an instant win. The other factor is that the combination of carbs and fats together is extremely rewarding. Let's put it that way. If you ask people what foods are problematic for you, what are you addicted to? What do you overeat? What is it that you're craving? All of these foods are high energy density carbs and fats together. Your donuts, your pizza, your cupcakes, your candy bars, all of your addictive and overeaten and hedonic and dopamine releasing foods are these high energy density carbs and fats together. And it's when you combine these carbs and fats that you're going to eat more. You know, if we just give you plain boiled potatoes, you're going to eat two of them and you're done eating for the rest of your life. But if we put a bunch of sour cream and butter on there and some bacon and some cheese, you're going to eat the hell out of that. And so when you're eating liberal amounts of carbs and fats together, you're definitely going to eat more just from a hedonic point of view. So it's like this, there's this push and pull to eating too much. On one side, pushing overeating, you've got dilution of protein and minerals in your food. So you have to overeat the french fries to get enough protein and minerals to not be hungry. But on the pull side, you've got the combination of high energy density carbs and fats together that's really tasty and hedonic and releases dopamine. And I'm going to say it's basically addictive. And so you're going to overeat the french fries because you want to eat more. So it's like people are overeating because either they need to eat more protein dilution or they want to eat more carbs and fats together. And both the sides of this coin have the same thing in common, and that's carbs and fats together. Okay, so here is a thought experiment, and I just am curious to know your thoughts. Say we could could have a situation, like it was very controlled, (laughs) it was enforced, so we didn't have to worry about the overeating aspect eating a high carb, high fat meal, but perhaps calorie restricted or at maintenance level compared to maybe eating more calories, but eating low carb or low fat for metabolic health in a person. And I know this is like a very vague experiment, but for metabolic health, do you think there's a difference there as far as how people respond to those macronutrients? No, not at all. I think if you fix the calories, it's all going to be exactly the same. If you lock people up in a metabolic ward and give them higher protein, lower protein, higher fat, lower fat, higher carbs, lower carbs, they're going to all have the same response metabolically. And that's why you hear all these people saying it's all about calories, because it is absolutely all about calories. The problem is fixing calories is the most artificial, stupid thing in the entire universe because nobody ever does that. And the whole world is just one giant ad lib 
diet experiment where people eat as much as they want and nobody fixes any calories and they're not going to and they never will. So it's absolutely ridiculous to artificially constrain calories. I mean, if I had one really high protein, low carb and low fat group with fixed calories in this metabolic ward of your thought experiment, like if I gave you just basically a smoked salmon omelet and a salad so the carbs and the fats were both pretty low and then i gave somebody else just like eight pop tarts or something where the protein's very low and the carbs and fats are high but the calories are the same what we're not going to see is how hungry the low protein high carbon fat together people are you know three or four hours down the road that's what we're not going to be capturing metabolically they're going to be exactly the same and that's why we have so many people saying it's all about calories calories are absolute and i totally agree with that i think it is all about calories if you artificially constrain that i also think that's completely worthless in the real world yeah, my only follow-up thought there is I can see how, you know, a high carb, high fat, at least calorie restricted meal that is controlled and in our our thought experiment of our metabolic ward might not create the metabolic problems, but I do wonder especially for those who have markers of, you know, insulin resistance or just metabolic issues, if there's something about having the carbs and fat fuel together that creates, you know, is it just processed as easily by the body and so can, you know, create this excess fuel buildup even at lower calorie states? It's just something that I think about a lot, the metabolic efficiency that you can get on a low carb or a low fat diet compared to when you have these substrates together. I mean, for some people, if they're like great at processing all the things all the time, maybe it's fine. But then I feel like some people really just don't respond well to, even if it's calorie restricted, that combination. I do think you're right. We have this Randall cycle where you're basically either burning carbs or burning fat. And if you try to overload your cell with both at the same time, with metabolic oversupply of both carbs and fats together, that's extremely bad, like that will literally break your mitochondria. We see mitochondria that are presented with metabolic oversupply of carbs and fats together. They will undergo uh, fission where they split up into tiny little mitochondria and they're trying to be less efficient so they can waste more food energy because there's too much. And you can literally kill your mitochondria or typically that leads to apoptosis where your cell dies as well. But metabolic oversupply is a huge disaster for your mitochondria. And that's probably what's driving a lot of the horrible downstream complications of all cardiometabolic disease like type 2 diabetes and Alzheimer's and atherosclerosis and all of this stuff. Everyone who's obese, everyone who's pre-diabetic, everyone who's diabetic, they all have one thing in common. They have smaller mitochondria, they have fewer mitochondria, they have lower mitochondrial function. And mitochondria is the only way fat is leaving your body. The only place that fat is burned is in your mitochondria. And you'll break those suckers if you chronically have metabolic oversupply. And that is typically resulting from too much carbs and fats, like you pointed out. So yes, I think there's probably an advantage to going either very low carb or very low fat. And if you're smart, you do both and eat a bunch of protein. Is there still that danger 
in the low carb or low fat state? I know because you're speaking about, you know, excess energy and then the potential to really mess up your mitochondria. For example, say you're on a low carb diet and you're hardcore, like high supplementing with something like MCT oil. Could there be the potential there for your mitochondria to break from just too much? And there'd be no carbs, but too much energy from the MCT? There really could. And actually, this is one of the reasons why I'm super down on exogenous ketones. I apologize if your show is sponsored by exogenous ketones or something. I don't think it is. But like, honestly, if you have metabolic oversupply where there's too much carbs, and you know, you've got too much fat in your fat cells, you've got too much triglycerides in your bloodstream, all of your cells are refusing this energy, you've got too much intramuscular triglycerides, and you've got too much energy everywhere. The exogenous ketones are basically trying to go to the front of the line. And you might be forced to oxidize those in your mitochondria, even though they've got way too much of everything else hanging around. And the same thing might be true of MCTs. And some of these things can enter your mitochondria without the transport that like a long chain fatty acid might need. And I think that actually might make your problem worse. So I'm really down on giving exogenous ketones to anyone who's overweight. Like if you're trying to treat their Alzheimer's or something like that, I think you might be giving them an alternate fuel that their brain can use transiently, but actually worsening their underlying disease and worsening the metabolic oversupply to their mitochondria, which is the fundamental problem that's broken. And so, yeah, I think that's actually bad. I'm not a big fan of MCT oil or exogenous ketones because 90% of everybody in the country has some amount of metabolic syndrome from basically too much energy in their body. Okay, that is so fascinating. The reason I've been thinking about that more is I've been experimenting with a lower carb diet, especially for my gut issues and things like that. And I found that MCTs actually work well for my gut and I could take in a lot of calories that way. But I started getting, and this is just completely in of one, but I started getting so hot and I was like, am I just like killing my mitochondria? Like I I just had this intuitive feeling that I was just creating all of this excess energy. I mean, this is just me, but I'm like, I don't know how it's being processed. I don't know what it's doing. So I'm just really fascinated by the potential of what might be happening there. Another question while we're still in the carbon fat world So we're talking a lot about how low-carb and low-fat are both potential routes to go to support metabolic health. Why do people so easily gravitate towards the low-carb? Does low-fat work for some people, or is it just a matter of finding what works for you? I feel like there's this whole world that is very hardcore low-carb, but if you have high-protein, low-fat, do you think that's a way that you can go as well? In the metabolic ward studies, if protein is matched and calories are matched, you get identical response to either low carb or low fat. Everyone loses weight. Everyone lowers fasting insulin. Everyone improves parameters. They're pretty much identical. What I think you're not capturing there is how hungry people are or how they feel or how often they feel like they need to eat. I think if you're starting out too fat, right? If there's too much fat in your body and all of this fat has to be burned in your mitochondria for it to leave. And you're eating carbs all the time. You're basically never 
really running your metabolism off of stored body fat or, or rarely or not as often as you should. And you're kind of tied to these carbs and you feel all these excursions in your blood sugar and you're, you're hungrier more often. And that's why I think anybody who's overweight is probably going to benefit from carbohydrate restriction so they can get better at burning fat. That's a skill they need. They need to get better at running their whole metabolism without carbs and exogenous glucose. They need to get better at fat oxidation. And that's why I highly recommend carb restriction frontline for anyone who's already overweight. Now, if, you, if you're starting out thin, well, let's face it, if you're thin in today's food environment, you don't suffer from carbohydrate issues. And you could go with a very high carb, low fat diet. I think that's totally fine. Anyone who's thin right now, effortlessly thin in our food environment is probably going to be fine with a low fat, high carb diet. But if you're already overweight, you should really go the other way around. What you want to do is get better at fat oxidation. So you're going to want to restrict carbohydrates. And in both settings, I recommend that protein be the dominant macronutrient, of course, like protein always has to be the highest, but you could go low carb or low fat and get results. Yeah, so Ted was just mentioning with the metabolic ward studies, during the three years when I was doing a plant-based diet, I honed in on doing a high-protein, low-fat approach, and I was less satiated doing that, eating around 3,000 calories a day than I am now doing a high-protein, low-carb approach, eating 22 to 2,400 calories a day. So I'm more satiated on fewer calories with that. So I think that that's definitely one of the things that doesn't get factored into those studies, the way that people feel from the fuel source. And how long did it take, William, for you to, when you did make that switch from more plant-based to the lower carb approach? I'm trying to remember when I interviewed you last time, your actual story surrounding that. How long did it take for you to see changes in your digestion, your energy levels, your fatigue? How was that adaptation process for you? So in terms of energy levels and fatigue, my energy started increasing after about two to three weeks. I definitely felt some immediate benefits just from finally including salt, electrolytes, red meat, all the B vitamins. So I definitely felt some immediate benefits to it. But in terms of getting greater satiety off of fewer calories, that really kicked in after about six months because I had continuously been trying to force fasting into the routine or force different styles of training just to try to lose the extra last few percentage of body fat. So I was really trying to force the process. But essentially, when I finally allowed my body to get accustomed to a higher protein, lower carb approach, and I really nailed in the protein to energy ratio with that, it honestly took me about a good six months. And then I started getting down into pretty low levels of body fat at a very moderate training routine and having a, you know, great appetite on that, being able to fast effortlessly. When I would eat, I would eat to satiety and I would be satiated at, at honestly pretty low calories. So that particular aspect of it did take a while. I think you can get, you could probably use PE diet principles to get lean in a short amount of time, but to really have your appetite stabilize and to have that satiety stabilize over time, it can take a good few months to really let your body reset. Maybe it's, it's set body weight set point and get that homeostasis back. Yeah. You brought up so many good things there. One of the things I do wonder 
so much. I don't know if we know this, but I do wonder how long it takes for our actual cells to switch or, you know, become, we always use this word metabolically flexible, but you know, how fast does that process actually occur from them processing different fuel substrates? And then I wonder if if there's some sort of metabolic memory in the mitochondria. Like if you've been low carb in the past and then you bring back carbs, will it be easier the second time around to start processing, you know, to switch back to low carb? I don't know if we know this. I don't know if it has to do with genetics or even epigenetics within the mitochondria. I don't know if you guys have thoughts on that. Oh, no, that's definitely true. There's an inertia to your metabolism. And there's a sort of a hysteresis in the mitochondria where you'll upregulate the oxidation pathway for either beta oxidation of long chain fatty acids or burning carbs. So you basically, you upregulate the pathway it takes to burn one thing or the other, and you get better at it. And then it takes a little bit of time to switch over. And that's, you know, usually like a week or two. But I think when you're trying to do something athletic at really high intensities, using one pathway or the other, that might take months to optimize just because there's, you know, so many different layers to like fat adaptation with exercise. You've got lipolysis and you've got to, you know, break down the fats, mobilize the fats, shuttle the fats into your mitochondria. And there's so many things that you have to upregulate there that could take, like William said, you know, six months to get to the point where you can do the same athletic endeavors in maybe a low carb state. But yeah, there's absolutely this inertia to your metabolism. And it's like if you had a factory that just makes cars and you you tune it all up for making cars, but now you switch to making trucks. It's going to take you some time to switch over and change all your all your equipment. And once you have it all switched over and changed, then you get really good at making trucks. You know what I mean? There's this little bit of inertia to it. Yeah. So In terms of an example of what Ted was saying, I've trained with Robert Sykes, who's a ketogenic bodybuilder who has been doing the diet now. It might be three or four years, hasn't cheated a day on it. I mean, he's about as strict as you can get. And he's able to train very intensely for about two hours per session at a very, very high level, about five to six days a week on a completely fat-based metabolism, which you know, training with him and seeing him doing that, it's it's very, very impressive. But one of the things that he told me was that took a lot of time for him to develop that ability. And it really does kind of take not cheating on the diet. I think the more you cheat on it, you might shortcut some of the adaptation process that's occurring. So to achieve that sort of a level of fat adaptation, it probably does take a level of commitment that people really have to stick to. I am so glad you brought that up. Okay. In the short term, I think that's huge for a lot of people. I don't know. I shudder because I think what a lot of people will do, especially with ketogenic diets, is they'll decide to try it. They'll go super high fat, you know, low carb, super high fat. They won't stick it out long enough to really adapt. And then they'll crave carbs. So then they'll throw in some carbs while they're in this state that they've been in of like really high fat. And I'm like, oh, then that's just like a it's just like slamming your body in a way. And then, it, you know, without ever experiencing the potential benefits, I think that's, a, you know, a, quite possibly a potential issue for a lot of people. And then I'm so glad both of you guys brought up that maybe it does take longer on the athletic side of things to make those adaptions, because there are a lot of studies, you know, showing the benefits of low carb diet. And then oftentimes there will be studies showing that, or seeming to show that, athletic performance isn't quite capable at the height, the same intensity. 
but I often wonder if it's just because the studies aren't long enough to let people, you know, actually, their bodies just haven't reached that adaptation period yet. Because it seems there, anecdotally, there are a lot of people, you guys both spoke of examples where if you stick it out long enough, you can get back that high performance physical activity, even on a lower carb diet. William, so you're talking about, and both of you guys in this book, so what is the the protein energy, the PE? What does that look like in foods? I mean, obviously listeners get the book because it's all there, but just like a brief preview of what that looks like. The PTE ratio is basically looking at grams of protein in a food versus grams of non-protein energy, which would be net carbs and fats. If people want a, a really good visual of what that looks like, I would go to the website p2er.com, like the letter P2, T-O-E-R.com. And we have a little graphic there and a little slider calculator doohickey gizmo thing that just gives you this really great visual snapshot of what this looks like. And so like a food that would be pure protein would be egg whites or whey powder. Food that would be pure non-protein energy would be like refined carb or refined fat, like sugar, flour, and oil. And then you've got kind of this scale of higher protein foods like lean meat and green vegetables. And then you've got lower protein foods like, you know, basically all of your grains, sugars, and starches, your high fat foods and stuff like that. Awesome. So for listeners, I will definitely put links to that in the show notes. And then again, it's all beautifully laid out, very easy to follow with great pictures in the actual book. So I definitely recommend checking that out. I have one more question sort of related to this before maybe we can tackle some exercise questions, but glycogen stores in the body, this is something I've been wondering because I've been lower carb now for quite a while, but I actually intuitively kind of want to try getting back to a high protein, lower fat approach. Does the glycogen storage potential in your body change when you've been low carb for a while. I know this is actually discussed a lot in like the Ray Pete world. I don't know if you're familiar with his work, but there's this idea that... Yes. Okay. I guess you are. This idea that, you know, you need to maximize your glycogen usage, your glycogen stores, and that you actually have to work to build up those stores. And does our glycogen storage potential change when we change our diet? So like if I've been low carb for quite a while, is it going to be hard for me to bring back the carbs? So in terms of glycogen storage, you know, you can store about 100 grams in your liver. You can store average of maybe 300 grams in your muscle. That's pretty much it. If you don't eat carbs for about 24 hours, your liver glycogen just dwindles down to basically effectively zero or as low as it ever gets and just stays there indefinitely until you eat carbs again. And the liver likes to stay empty of glycogen because its job is to suck incoming glucose out of your bloodstream and then buffer it out slowly over a period of hours. And it kind of protects you from high glucose. Muscles are different. Their job is to stay reasonably full of glycogen or at least have some glycogen in them for emergency use. Because anytime you're sprinting for your life or expending, you know, 100% of your intensity in exercise, you have to burn 100% pure glucose from glycogen in the muscles themselves. So your liver likes to stay empty. Your muscles like to stay full-ish. If you just stop eating carbs, about 24 hours later, your liver glycogen is pretty much zero or as low as it ever gets, and you're making ketones as a result. But your muscle glycogen will stay wherever it was for 
a pretty long time and it will never go all the way down to zero. You always keep some glycogen in your muscles. But then if you go very, very low carb and then also do a bunch of high intensity exercise and deplete all the glycogen in your muscles and you do this just total glycogen depletion with days of no carbs, tons of high intensity exercise, and then you eat a whole bunch of carbs, you get this super compensation where you might shove, you know, 600 grams of glycogen into your muscles. It'll be the highest it ever, ever gets because your body is like, whoa, we don't get carbs very often. We want to hold on to it. And that's basically what every single competitive bodybuilder is doing the day before they get on stage. They'll do a glycogen depletion phase where they eat no carbs and do a ton of high intensity exercise to suck every bit of glycogen out of their body. And then they'll eat, you know, maybe 800 grams of carbs and try to just shove it all into their muscles so they look really full the next day. So so you'll see this glycogen kind of going up or down depending on the environment. If you just exist for weeks with no carbs at all and you just sort of live in a low carb state, your muscle glycogen will hover at around about 30% of what it would be with this super maximum super compensation mega carb load trick. You know what I'm saying? So you'll sort of stay at a, like a 200 grams of glycogen in your muscles or something. And you won't really go below that. Now, if you do high intensity exercise in about an hour of high intensity exercise, you'll burn every single bit of that glycogen. And then you'll just slowly build it back up over the next 24 hours. But if you don't eat carbs, you'll stay at this kind of lower muscle glycogen state, maybe a third of what you your absolute maximum would be. So it's kind of weird. It's kind of complicated. Depends on (laughs) what's going on. But that's kind of the basic way the glycogen functions. And does it matter the source of those carbs? So for example, you know, more starchy, glucose-based, would that more likely refill the muscles versus something like fruit? Would that more likely refill liver glycogen? Yeah, so fructose has to be processing your liver and you're a little more likely to turn fructose into you know you have to store it as fat and you have to convert it into uric acid and metabolically it's just not as great versus glucose which every cell in your body can utilize so you know glucose is probably better than fructose but if you're a competitive athlete you want to replenish your liver glycogen too, so you can dole out some more liver glycogen to your muscles as well with high-intensity exercise, which happens. And that's why something like Gatorade is going to have some fructose and some glucose in it. Hi, friends. Okay, so I'm a little bit embarrassed because I've been talking for so long about red light and near-infrared therapy, which is so, so important. However, I kind of left out something really important about light. So as you guys know, I've been talking about red light and near-infrared for so long. And at the same time, during the day, I was using a bright, sad light. So it's those white lights that help with waking you up, help with your circadian rhythm. They're used to combat mood issues and depression. So I have a really bright white one of those at my desk. A few things about that. I knew it helped wake me up and kept me stimulated, but I wasn't sure if it had any detrimental effects using it. And then two, I was also wondering if by just focusing on red and near-infrared light, was I somehow missing something in the full spectrum of light? Guess what? I was. And guess what? 
I found the solution. And guess what? I have a discount for you guys. So the founder of a company called Soulshine reached out to me and he was like, do you know about the importance of full spectrum light? And I was like, you know what? I've been wondering about this for quite a while. Please educate me. Oh my goodness. This man blew my mind. I talk a lot about the problems of blue light. That said, we evolved in natural full-spectrum sunlight that our genes are programmed to respond to. And today, we do not spend enough time in that light. A lot of us don't go outside, and we're overexposed to blue light. It's a problem. And then to make things even more problematic, the common sad lights that I was talking about that are bright white, they actually do not contain the full-spectrum light. They filter out certain wavelengths, and they're high in blue light. So just like I thought... It was not doing my health many services. There is only one company I have found, or I guess that found me, that makes a full spectrum white light device. So the Soul Light Systems include the fullest spectrum of visible and invisible near-infrared light with traces of UV light. Yep, that's right, because you need all of that as well. Don't worry, it's not an exuberant amount that's going to cause a problem. It's just a tiny little dose that your body actually needs. You can use these lights to fix your circadian rhythm and properly stimulate your brain's suprachiasmatic nucleus, or SCN, in a way that it was supposed to be stimulated. It's kind of like the natural spectral diet. Because yes, you may be suffering from malillumination. Did you know that your entire bloodstream actually filters through your eyes in a relatively short amount of time, that's the only way your blood is exposed to the outside world. So when we expose our eyes to this light, it actually can have beneficial effects on our blood. That is crazy. It helps with skin, with mood. This is the light that I wasn't thinking about that we need. I love Soulshine's light therapy devices. I do use it in combination with my red and near-infrared light devices as well so that I can fully bathe my body in the best light that is so helpful for my sleep, for my stress, for my metabolism, for my immunity, for my health, so many things. They have so many different device options. They have one that I love that kind of looks like a juve and I sit it on my desk and it has options for the full spectrum light, which is that bright white light, as well as an ear infrared option. So what I do is I do a session of the full spectrum light in the morning and then I run the near infrared to help counteract the negative blue light around me. They also have stands with bulbs that you can get. I've been using some of those on my plants. I am just so grateful that Ken at Soulshine found me because I was missing out on such a key aspect of light and I had no idea. And you can get 10% off at melanieavalon.com slash soulshine. That's S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E with the code Melanie Avalon. So melanieavalon.com slash soulshine, S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E with the code Melanie Avalon for 10% off. It's really helped my mood, my energy, my sleep, so many things. I think you guys will love it. So again, go to melanieavalon.com slash soulshine, S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E and use the coupon code Melanie Avalon to get 10% off site-wide. And we'll put all this information in the show notes. Yeah. Where I'm coming from is out of all the different dietary approaches I've like fiddled with, the one that I think at least worked really well for me at the time was kind of bringing together a lot of these different ideas, but it was doing intermittent fasting, eating in the evening, high protein, lower fat, but actually high fruit rather than other types of carbs. And what I found from that, and this is why I'm always researching this because I just really want to know if this is what was happening. But intuitively, what I felt was that I was mostly just filling up my liver each night rather than my muscles. And then, 
you know, during the day, my liver was, you know, keeping my blood sugar level with the stores that it had. And then I was kind of filling up again at night. And while I was doing that, it seemed to work really well. I don't know if that's actually what was happening, but that's what I'm always trying to figure out, like, what was actually happening then? So I'm just really fascinated by all of it. It's tricky because if you if you just did a ton of high-intensity exercise and your muscle glycogen is really low, all the carbs you eat will literally just fall into your muscles down this concentration gradient. Your muscles basically just suck up all the glucose in your bloodstream, even without much of an insulin spike. You're just so insulin sensitive and your muscles are so good at disposing of this glucose if they're empty on glycogen, that it's almost like a free-for-all if you eat carbs right after you know an hour of super high-intensity exercise. And muscle glycogen is a very high-priority task for your body. So when you eat post-workout carbs or you do the sort of carb backloading thing you're describing, a lot of that will go into muscle. But then once the muscles are sort of full, well, not like completely full, but full-ish, like medium, then the rest of your liver will absorb and you'll have this liver glycogen that slowly drifts down over the next, you know, 16 hours or so. But I think that this glycogen flux is really good for health and metabolic sensitivity. So I love it when people are doing high-intensity exercise for glycogen depletion, and then eating some carbohydrate and cycling this glycogen, I think that's a totally reasonable thing. And so your approach of, you know, just eating carbs, you know, maybe once a day and backloading them is probably great. Yeah. Well, I'm so glad to hear you say that. (laughs) It's like I'm sighing of relief. Well, I keep trying to get back to it though. My problem is I think because I've been low carb for so long, every time I try to bring back the carbs, I get the massive sugar cravings and I'm like, no, I think what I need to probably do is just like stick it out, you know, commit to that sort of pattern where I'm doing, you know, lower fat, higher carb and a backloaded type pattern and just stick it out through those days of cravings. I imagine they might go away, but I think a good takeaway for people is that there are obviously a lot of different approaches that can work and, you know, feeling free to experiment, but at least my personal opinion, and I would, I believe Dr. Naaman and William's opinion is that protein is definitely something you probably should not fiddle too much with. Maybe in a, how do you guys feel about like, like the occasional low protein day for longevity or something like that? Do you think that might be viable? Personally, I think that, you know, everyone's worried about the signaling mTOR and, you know, what this is going to mean for cancer or longevity. And so insulin stimulates mTOR a lot. And the very worst scenario is just being over fat all day long, all day, every day. You know what I mean? So if you're fatter than you should be, your insulin is just constantly elevated. Your fasting insulin is high. Your postprandial insulin is really high. You're just basically stimulating the hell out of mTOR and your IGF-1 levels are high. And all of this sort of decreased longevity and increased cancer risk is, in my opinion, mostly happening from this metabolic oversupply. So I think if you're super, super lean and you're not eating constantly and you have and you don't have any metabolic oversupply, I don't think that going, you know, a day or two to of not eating protein, I don't know that that's going to give you any additional health benefits. I think that your number one strategy should be as lean as possible for maximum insulin sensitivity and minimum metabolic oversupply. 
And I don't know that if you've already arrived there that, okay, I'm not going to eat protein for three days and, you know, for some sort of magic autophagy or lowered cancer risk. I don't have any evidence to suggest that that's really going to work. Gotcha. I'm glad you brought up, you know, the role of lean. I think focusing in on lean, the role of muscle, I think is something you discuss in your book, obviously so important. And which also can bring us into the topic of exercise and such. And William, I'd love to hear your thoughts on some of this. So for exercise and training, something you guys talk about in the book is the role of adaptation and the need to basically keeping your body guessing when it comes to exercise. So why is that? And what does that look like practically? Yeah, what we're really targeting with that is basically ratcheting up the intensity in the shortest duration of time. So the said principle where it's a specific adaptation to impose demand is your body is going to adapt to whatever demand you're imposing upon it. So if you're walking all day, you'll become a much better walker, but you're not necessarily going to have the sort of muscular adaptation that would allow you to fill up more glycogen that would help you dump glycogen during high intensity exercise. So what we kind of promote is what is the best investment or what's the best return on your investment of time. And what we found that to be is basically following a higher intensity training protocol that you can do one set to failure, a full body workout daily. This can take 10 to 15 minutes where you basically go from your head to your toes. So you're doing a pushing movement, a pulling movement, something for your core, so a hinging movement, as well as something for your back and a leg movement. And then as far as cardio goes, rather than perhaps a 45 to 60 minute session on the elliptical, doing an all out burst for maybe 30 seconds, whether it's jump roping or sprinting or jump squats, and then you could rest for another 30 seconds and then hit another interval of that. So you're basically getting a much better bang for your buck. And the adaptation response that that's going to elicit is going to be so much greater than spending an hour and a half on, you know, a lot lower intensity exercise. Yeah, that was something I really loved about the exercise section of your book, because I know for me personally, and listeners probably know this about me, I'm I'm not a big gym person. I tend to try to embrace my quote exercise from life. So I'm just constantly like, I actually wear weights around when I'm like grocery shopping and I'm always like lifting things and I like to do, you know, quick bursts of things when I can. But that said, the mentality of the exercise section of the book, even though I don't go to the gym, like the concept really, really, I feel applied to my life and I think can apply to so many people, whether you're in the gym or not even in the gym, just this idea of, you know, keep doing these intense exercises briefly so that your body is not adapting. Like I said, I love how you, you talked about it. You talked about basically when we hit our, our max intensity that our body consciously doesn't know what's happening. So it's like, I have to adapt to this because this cannot happen again. It's like crisis mode for the body and you can get stronger from that. And I just really, really love that concept. And then I will say this book actually was probably one of the first times that there was a gym exercise section in the book. And I was like, I think I'm actually going to use this. So thank you. You got me sold. So listeners, definitely check it out if you would like to maximize your exercise and maximum return on investment. That was something I loved was what does the time commitment look like? Is it spending hours and hours at the gym or what does that look like? 
I think Ted's got it down with a busy schedule as a practitioner. I mean, he, he keeps this super, super simple. I personally, just cause I, I like the gym, it, what I do isn't efficient at all. I like to spend more time there, but Ted, how, how much time does it take you on a daily basis? Just getting a workout in? I mean, I basically never work out more than 15 minutes and it, it's really just doing a set of a pushing move like push-ups to failure and then a couple rest pause sets, a pulling move like pull-ups to failure and then some sort of leg move like squats. And then I also try to do a burst of cardio and that might be just jump squats or jumping rope or something like that. And yeah, it's it's definitely 15 minutes start to finish and it's with... I don't go to the gym. The only equipment I usually ever need is something to pull on, like a pull-up bar or a set of rings or a suspension trainer or something. I have to have something to pull on, but that could be like a, you know, freaking tree branch or something. And I love to, not only is it just 15 minutes a day that I spend working out, but I, I will frequently break it up and it will be interstitial to the rest of my day. Like I might spend three minutes you know, in the playground doing pull-ups on the monkey bars or something. And then later I'll do spend three minutes doing a couple sets of failure of a pushing exercise, like a push-up or a handstand push-up. And, and so I could actually have these, you know, four little micro workouts of three minutes each scattered throughout my day. They could pretty much take place anywhere I'm at. And so I've just really fragmented it up. And I've been experimenting with the minimum effective dose of exercise for a really long time. And I'm trying to figure out what's the very smallest amount of exercise you need to get it done and the very least time and equipment and money. And I'm just trying to be as minimalistic as possible, mostly because I want to I want to convince my patients, hey, you don't need a bunch of crap to get in exercise. You don't need a gym membership and a trainer, a bunch of crazy equipment and all of this time and money and stuff. You could just like wherever you're at right now, just drop to the floor and do a set of push-ups all the way to failure and beyond, like as hard as you possibly can. The next day, you'll literally be stronger in a push direction and a push movement with your pushing chain muscles. And people just don't understand how little it actually takes if the intensity is as high as you can possibly generate. And that's what this book is all about. I love that so much. I think that's so wonderful. And then I'm glad as well, William, that you brought up for you like you love going to the gym. So for you, that's, you know, there's the mental aspect to it. So it's something you enjoy. It's something that you love. You're not there because you're, I mean, I don't know why you're there, but (laughs) I didn't get the sense that you're there because, you know, you're dreading it and you're feeling like you have to commit to this certain amount of, you know, time for you, you know, it sounds like you really enjoy it. And I think I just would love for everybody to, because I think physical movement is just, you know, so important supporting our muscles so important. So finding that movement that works in your life that you enjoy. And I think that's possible for literally every single person, because I think our bodies intuitively want to move. I think we just get stuck in, because of our modern you know, society, the foods we're eating, our lifestyles, we get stuck in, you know, we get stuck in a state of being sedentary and it's hard to start moving when you're not moving. But then once you're moving, it can feel good. I like what you were saying, Melanie, about simply exercising through life. Like almost what we're describing is 
for the person that does not want to do any sort of physical activity throughout the day, or perhaps they're as sedentary as possible, like this is the minimum investment that you need to make to keep your body progressing and to keep yourself mobile, limber, healthy, getting stronger over time. But a lot of people, you know, let's say it's somebody like you who has a very active lifestyle in general, you're getting that movement in throughout the day. You're, you're not living a sedentary lifestyle. And for me, I'm not really sure why I'm at the gym that long either. <laughs> to me, it's, it's mainly a mental time. You know, it's, it's a great time to listen to music. It's a great time to focus on the body part that I'm working. You know, some guys work on cars, some guys have different hobbies. For me, it's, it's always been like a fun passion project of building, you know, building my body as a whole. And it's also just a great mental time, fun way to anchor my day in the morning. So. Yeah, that is so wonderful. And it reminds me of, I'm paraphrasing, but it's one of the last things that you guys said in the book. And I actually, I was actually talking about this on the intermittent fasting podcast. I I quoted you guys because you said something about how for long-term sustainability, you know, with diet lifestyle that it'll only be sustainable if you enjoy the process that got you there. And I just thought that was so profound. I was like, that is so true. Because really, if you do enjoy the process that gets you there, I mean, there's very few reasons you would ever have to worry about stopping or, you know, rebounding or falling off the wagon. So I just, I really, really love that so much. To wrap this all up, and it kind of fits really well, there is one question that I always have as the last question for every guest on this podcast. And it's just because I've realized how incredibly important mindset is when it comes to health and wellness. I just think it's, I just think it's so huge. So for both of you, what is something that you're grateful for? Oh, wow. So the thing I'm most grateful for is my health. And honestly, after having the job that I have and seeing people who lose their health all day long, I've realized that health should be everyone's number one concern. And if you don't have your health, nothing else matters. I mean, your your family, your possessions, your Everything else goes out the window if you lose your health. So your health should be everyone's number one concern. And it is definitely the single thing that I am the very most grateful for, without question. For you, William, it doesn't have to be the most, or it can be. It could be whatever you like. <laughs> Ted's response is way more applicable to the podcast. But I would honestly say this just came to my head. I tell them this every day. Uh, I'm very grateful for my parents. I think in terms of mindset, like at the end of the book, we talk about how you have one trip through this life and you really want to make the most of it. And health is perhaps the the primary domino. You know, it's maybe the major pillar of allowing you to make the most of this one trip through life. But yeah, just having a good start in life has such a huge impact on your ability to continue moving forward. You know, I think so many people are exposed to information about health and wellness and self-improvement and ways to improve their life, but perhaps because of limiting mindsets that they were given or adopted somehow through their adolescence and childhood, it stops them from ever implementing anything, maybe because they they simply don't have the self-esteem or they don't believe in themselves. So I thank God and I thank my parents every single day that they raised me the way they did and they were encouraging supportive people. So I'd say that's that's what I'm very grateful for. I love that so much. And 
I could talk about all this for like another hour. So I will stop there, but thank you guys both so much. Thank you for the work that you're doing. Your book is just, it's just such a wonderful resource. And I think you really are, you know, bringing to light something that is so important as far as protein, diet, health, exercise. And then like we just ended on like the sustainability of it all and how to really implement it and really make changes. So I cannot thank you enough for listeners. If you go to the show notes, again, the show notes will be at melanieavalon.com slash protein. There will be links there to the book. And we also have, thank you guys for this. You are offering our listeners 10% off of all primal body carnivore plans. Those are available at primalbody.co. So thank you so much for that. I'll put links to that in the show notes as well. But thank you. This has been absolutely wonderful. And I'm just really excited to follow the rest of your work, see where this all goes. And hopefully maybe we can bring you guys back in the future for another episode. Oh, well, thanks so much for having us. All right. Thank you. Bye. Thank you, Melanie. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. For more information, you can check out my book, What When Wine, Lose Weight and Feel Great with Paleo-Style Meals, Intermittent Fasting, and Wine, as well as my blog, MelanieAvalon.com. Feel free to contact me at podcast at MelanieAvalon.com. And always remember, you got this.